Hello everyone and welcome to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am, as always, your host Otek Andre, and you're listening to episode 36. Now, uh, I know there has been some delay between these episodes. Um, I want to apologize for that. At the beginning of the year, I uh, set out a goal for myself to put out an episode each week, which unfortunately did not happen. I'm not really trying to make excuses, but here I am making one. <laughs> so basically, this August and September have been very, very busy for me. Um, our gym has been closed for renovations. So I, I had to work a lot. I had to commute to the other part of the city to work in a different gym while this one was closed. Um, and a lot of other things have happened. So that sort of took up my schedule and I, I wasn't able to record new and edit new episodes, unfortunately. But that's in the rear, rear view. Thankfully, our gym is open and um, I plan on getting back to a more regular uh, schedule, a more consistent schedule. So with that out of the way, let's get into this week's episode and our guest, which is uh, Nick Love. Now, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, Nick is a relatively new acquaintance, so to speak. Um, I haven't known him for a long time, but uh, in the time that I did know him, he's made a very deep impression of me. Uh, and that's why I... Um, I invited him on my podcast and um, I am proud in a sense to say that or mine is the first podcast he ever appeared on so when he's famous you know I can I can uh, brag about that achievement. Uh, <laughs> this episode is going to be a very good one. We talk about a lot of practical stuff which thinking lifters like yourselves are going to appreciate talk about how to find the balance between progressing in weights versus keeping form very very strict we talk about momentum we talk about certain exercises we rant here and there it's just a fun episode the conversation was a bit of a free-flowing we didn't have a very very strict um, schedule so to speak to stick to but that's how i like it to be so i hope you enjoyed the episode and without further ado Let's get into episode 36 of the Muscle Engineer Podcast with Nick Gloff. Nick, welcome to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, man. My pleasure. Um, you know, I was thinking that you're uh, an unusual guest for me. Uh, why do I say that? Because most of my guests, I have known them for years and I have been, you know, following them before I had this whole podcast thing going on. And uh, now I'm basically just catching up with the people I've known uh, in quotation marks for a while, but you're one of those people who I um, just recently came across. I think it was Valentin Tambosi who shared, um, you know, that uh, too easy dumbbell row that you did with what was like 118 kilos, something like that. Uh, I'm not too good with the, the kilo to pound conversion off my head, but the best I've done, and I have a video of it on Instagram if anybody wants to go and verify, but at my gym back home, there's a dumbbell that I can load up with 25-pound plates. So I ended up getting up to a 260-pound for 10 one-arm dumbbell row. <laughs> yeah, and it was stricter than most people row 100. So that's what <laughs> that's what caught my interest. Um, and then I saw that, hey, this is an interesting guy because he seems to have some formal education in this stuff. He's smart, but also um, he lifts and he trains with some ridiculous weights and he also doesn't just swing them around. So 
those kind of people are very rare to uh, to uh, have all those criteria ticked off. Usually, it's one or the other, maybe two of the three. So I, uh, that's what I wanted to have you on because I think you can offer us some very interesting insights. Well, I appreciate that. And before we get started, I want to give that shout out right back to Valentin. So I don't know him exactly too well. We haven't had too many lengthy conversations, but I have a lot of respect for that guy. And I mean, I hope at some point in the future I get to do something along the lines with him and all the boys from over there across the pond. I am a I am a guy based out of the uh, the U.S. So I'm kind of disconnected from all of you guys in the scene that's quickly developing over there. It looks pretty exciting. So yeah, maybe one day you can visit Dust Gym and uh, you can actually try out some proper equipment because, like we were discussing, <laughs> the equipment we, we you have available is not the best, and uh, I certainly have tried uh, plenty of shitty ones in my <laughs> in my in my years. So yeah, so <laughs> we've. Talk. That's pretty much every conversation we've had up to this point is just kind of taking it out on every single piece of equipment we have available to us. I mean, for me, I know in the gyms that I have access to, the the one that I have here at the school that I attend and the one back home for me is just it's so minimal that in some ways it's been a good thing. In some ways, it's really not been a good thing for me where I've been pretty much forced to get really good at free weight, barbell, dumbbell exercises and, you know, the derivations thereof because I don't have access to really good machine equipment. So for since I've started actually lifting things and putting them back down, I've really not had much of an option but to go with the uh, the free weight compound moves that most people tend to avoid when they have a lot of equipment at their hands from the start. So... I can I can credit a bit of my my exercise selection and what I tend to gravitate to based on just where I've had to grow up and what I've had to do to keep training properly. Yeah, of course. Um, every every blessing is a curse, and every curse is a blessing in a sort of way. So that's just how things work out. So let's start with your background, because you mentioned to me that uh, you also like sort of uh, followed MI forty for a while. I'm curious uh, to your training history experience, how your thoughts have developed and how your, you said that, um, you know, you transitioned away from it, but still implemented some of that principles you, you learned from that uh, system or whatever uh, I should call it, method of training. Um, so what, I guess, where did you start? How did you start lifting and what were your first exposures and how did you get into MI40 and how have you transitioned away since then? Well, at the very start of things, um, it kind of started with my first introduction to real formal sport. So when I was about 12 years old, I got myself involved with the, uh, the school football team, the American football team out here where I, where I grew up. And that was my first introduction to actually pushing myself and finding out what my body could do. And to supplement with the actual practicing and the skill-based practice that I had to go through on a day-to-day basis, I wanted to do a little bit more to get myself an edge. So I started to look at the resources that were easily available to me and the things that were most available to me and that I could digest the information of was a infographic or no, not infographic, wrong word, infomercial fitness. 
So I ended up going through the beach body programs as the first things that I ever saw. So first things I had ever done was P90X. And I'm not exactly proud to, to say that, but I can, I can now use that as an experience and say, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. And I went through the whole program multiple times. I've done the other resistance training based programs that they had through Beachbody. And I've done the insanity workouts they had. And then shortly thereafter, I got a little bit more competitive in my wrestling that I did also in middle school and high school. And that pulled me away from doing those sort of in, in home video workouts because I couldn't really push myself too far after a certain point. Moved on to going to a real gym. The gym that I have been training out of since that time. So it's been about 10 years. And I just started going in and I started lifting stuff, basic compound movements and just a couple of moves that I had picked up from the beach body stuff that I very quickly learned were not very effective. So I started just moving things around and not really knowing what I was doing. So I kept on looking for more information. And one of the next things that I ended up stumbling across was BPAC, uh, Ben Pikulski who was at the time he was one of the more dominant pro figures. So he had, you know, really huge physique at the time. That's where he, he was kind of hitting his peak. He was putting out a lot of content, a lot of paid content. So, and he made a really interesting case in everything that he would talk about, about how just moving a weight through space isn't actually doing you very much in the grand scheme. If you don't have control over it, you don't know what the muscles are doing. You're not actually targeting their action. So I kind of dove into that with the premise that, I mean, just like it was marketed as you start doing this program and you're going to get three times as huge in a quarter of the time, a third of the time. So the usual, the usual draw got me just like it would the normal layman is at the time I was. So moving on through that, I kind of started to learn and give some reverence to having real control overloads, really understanding the actual ranges of motion that joints are uh, capable of and the ranges of motion that muscles around those joints are able to support actively. That was one of the things that really stuck with me. That's probably the main tenant of what I use today now in my training. The things that I had gotten most out of uh, Ben Pikulski's MI40 system was one, control of the weight. So just being able to lock in and use as much bracing as you can, whether or not that's internal or external, trying to control all the extraneous movement, try to direct all of the load into the place that you're trying to put it. Two, keeping control through tempo, which within itself isn't actually, you know, a very specific thing that you need to be doing, other than the fact that if you don't know how to do a movement already, if you're moving too quickly, there's a very high likelihood that you're not actually using the target muscle to move that weight. So I've taken that along and that's still something that I use a lot today. And third, really just taking advantage of force curves and strength curves that are present and, you know, avoiding things that completely disalign from them. And I mean, that's pretty much it that I got through MI40 and I took that program and I buried it for a good two or three years. 
And then after that point, kind of felt like I was maximizing what I could get out of the written programs that he was putting out. So beyond then, I had to kind of expand my horizons and figure out the actual mechanisms behind all the things that he was preaching, kind of find where there could be possible holes or where it's not applicable to me where I was at the current time. And that's helped me to actually develop my own kind of training system where it's not unlike a lot of other people's that have gone about this by themselves. They just kind of pick and choose the things that are actually going to be applicable and try to exploit all the variables that you have available until you figure out exactly what's going to work the best. And that's kind of where I've gotten to moving as heavy things as you possibly can for as much volume as you can tolerate at that current time and keep on trying to progress over period of time through load, total volume through the load, total volume through the volume itself through sets and reps, and then cycling that as your recovery systemically over time will change. So if that all makes sense, I hope it does. It makes for me, and I hope it will make for the listeners too. You know, it's funny because... Uh, I came across Ben Pakorski like like yourself like pretty early on in, I think it was already in 2011 or 12, so it was early on, but, but then somehow transitioned away from him. Um, I st- also started, or I came across some articles saying that, you know, you uh, you have to get bigger, uh, or have to get uh, have to get stronger, and then you'll get bigger, and then I somehow got away from it. And then I came across uh, Joe on Instagram again, and I saw him that, uh, you know, he was working in Ben's gym, and that's when I, I guess I was mature enough, or I guess I I knew enough to (laughs) appreciate the content he was putting out, so that's when I, I guess, uh, went back to Joe, because, I don't know, it was something about, like you said, it was, Ben's stuff was... It seemed too, too gimmicky, too cringy in the sense that it was a lot of, uh, you know, when you see an IVB guy promoting something, it's I wasn't uh, so naive to think that they were natural. So it just seemed like, ah, uh, maybe it works for him, but, you know, he's on all kinds of special supplements, so I'm not. Um, so I didn't really uh, give it too much attention, but uh, Joe's stuff was very, very... Uh, Interesting, and like you said yourself, it no, it wasn't just that he was big. He was big, but he wasn't huge or like monster looking. Um, he was using heavy weights, but he was also controlling them well, and that's what really stuck to me. And that's what really opened my eyes that hey, it's not just one or the other. It's not just using heavy weights or uh, or doing them well. It's it's both. Like you know, <laughs> I'm sure you get this question often that what's more important. Uh, uh, using more weights or better execution and, and you'll be like, or Joe, Joe's like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is the answer. It's just, yes. Awesome. And, uh, I'm really glad that, uh, towards the end, you also highlighted the importance of volume that it's not just, you know, strength, strength, strength. Then you can also get into some other mistakes that you only focus on. Like I see this all the time. People will come to me and be like, so can you give me a spot and make sure? And I see guys like, They'll do, I don't know, they'll put uh, 80 kilos on the bar and they'll struggle to do two reps and like, what are you doing? And they'll be like, well, you know, I have to lift heavy to get big. Well, yeah, you have to lift uh, 
heavy for eight reps, not two reps, <laughs> you know, and they, they just don't get it. And that's what's really frustrating because um, this has happened many times, you know, that I, I try to give an advice to someone and they they say that they listen, but they don't listen. And then six months pass by and still have no results, but they still don't listen. And at that point, I'm like, listen, you can do whatever the fuck you want because it's obvious. <laughs> it's obvious you're just an asshole. Like you're just asking advice for the sake of asking it. So um, it's not really worth uh, wasting my time. I do want to return to something that I did mention about uh, BPAX things and what something that you said uh, spurred a thought for me. And one, I want to say this right out that I have a lot of respect for Ben Pakulski and a lot of respect for Joe Bennett. They're both awesome. And I've followed them pretty much since the first time I ever saw their content. I thought there was some value in it. And obviously I paid for their content, both of them and gone through the programs. And I really appreciate everything that they do for the industry. So I don't want anything that I say to be misconstrued as me bad-mouthing anything that they've taught or anything that I've gained from them because I've gained a tremendous amount of information out of, you know, what they've been able to provide. But one of the major downfalls that I found through both of those training methods, which are pretty similar to each other, that the point that I came to after so long using that method was that even though Ben Pakulski, using his method himself and the people that he trains in person, they have their bearings of whether or not they can go heavier and keep all of the same, like all of the cues, all of the bracing, perfect control. Like there's no way for the normal person buying their program to exactly know what the threshold of good and acceptable is and what is too far. So... I ended up getting to the point where I was so over analytical over form and execution and tempo control just for the sake of doing them. Cause I thought that, I mean, obviously it, it is still true that for you to get the actual volume that you're trying to get out of the exercises and get the benefit that you're trying to get out of them, you have to be able to isolate or target or use whichever word you want to use for whatever context it is, the muscle and the movement you're doing. But you kneecap yourself continuously if you just keep on fighting for ever more perfect execution and you never, ever push the load, which is what ended up happening to, happening to me. And that's happened to a couple of other guys that I've came across in the gym that have actually just stumbled upon their, their programs and thought it was a great idea to train that way. And although it is, if you don't have the wherewithal and the information at your hands and the maturity to know that like there is a threshold to the point where your execution is kind of asymptotic where you can make it better and better and better. And sure that that's great, but you're never going to be a hundred percent perfect. And that last 5% that you're trying to get from between, I don't know, 95 to a hundred percent perfect on that execution you might be sacrificing half of the load that you're actually capable of with still 90% perfect form. And so that's just not a trade-off that's worth it in the end. And just by trying to isolate and target those muscles so completely by controlling it that far, you're taking away from your total capacity to load, which is going to end up being the primary progressive method that you're going to use for the majority of your muscle growth. 
So I just wanted to make sure that that was said. No, it's perfect. And uh, I didn't send you these over because I figured we would just uh, go with them uh, or talk to them on the fly. But it's funny because my my second bullet point here uh, in my notes is execution versus loads. So you tackled <laughs> that uh, you tackled that question perfectly. It's awesome. And uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, it's funny because uh, I was thinking uh, recently about the same stuff or. I'm preparing a talk for an online uh, thing I'm giving, and I was thinking about the same thing that you know you sort of gotta have a range of execution. Let's say you, you subjectively in analyzing yourself, you might give yourself permission to get down to uh, a seven in your own scale. So ten would be if if God came on Earth and uh, God started doing exercises and perfection in in, in its truest form, that would be a ten. And uh, let's say you you allow yourself to get down to a seven in your own, whatever subjective rating you you set for yourself or bar you set for yourself, standard you set for yourself, and you say, okay, I will increase the load. If I can still get an eight or a nine, then it's good. Um, if it's a seven, then it's borderline. It's still okay, but I have to keep watching this because it might next time I might just stick with it and try to improve it to an eight or a nine. Um, but if it then becomes a five, then it's like okay, it's already too heavy. Let's drop the weight back a bit. Let's let's uh, focus on uh, on perfecting uh, the load we were using before. So I'm very much with you uh, on the same page on this issue. So you brought up the the normal person that asks you a question about whether or not it is execution, or if it's load, or if it's volume or load that matters in total for you to actually make progress i was just i was just thinking about people asking advice in general and uh, um and you perhaps telling them what you also said previously that you know you have to use heavyweights and they also have to be done for a sufficient amount of volume with a sufficiently high quality execution so you're also targeting the musculature you're trying to target and uh, perhaps this advice will fall on deaf ears. So something that I was thinking about is that person that you were talking about, uh, the the general bro that decides that progressive overload is the only thing that matters. So they end up doing two rep sets on the bench and just keep on doing two rep sets on the bench. And then they kind of, they, they lose all their ability to load for the rest of the session. One, because they've done a two rep max. And it probably didn't look that great because over time that capacity will go down if you keep on repetitively trying to hit it. Uh, but that whole thought process of progressive overload being the major thing that matters and you just chasing more load is going to be the only method that's going to get you the most result is kind of based on a little bit of a misconception of what progressive overload actually is. And that can also tie into what we just talked about with you know, the, the execution of whether or not, you know, a seven out of 10, I mean, pull it back a little bit, get a little bit better, stay there until you can get your form up to an eight out of 10, nine out of 10, and then you can move the, a higher load. That whole, the whole idea of progressive overload is it's more a reactive thing than it is a causative thing where you being able to lift more load at a certain um, exercise with the same amount of execution, the, the same qualitative execution, that is a result of having more tissue or more neuromuscular, um, neuromuscular efficiency at that movement. So 
as long as you're within a couple of percentages, and I'm not super up to date on exactly the percentages that uh, the papers that have come out and the anecdotal research from people that have done more personal training and programming than I have, but within a range of loading, about I'd give it a number of around 10% of the actual loading that you actually need to in a certain rep range with that execution. As long as you're within there, you're still in a progressive overload sort of circumstance. You don't have to go to 102% of the load that you used last time, every time, to get progressive overload. That is you trying to progress the load from session to session, which isn't the same as you achieving progressive overload by continuing to keep on training in a relative rep range or loading zone for appropriate volume that is around the adaptive range that you need at that time. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Oh yeah, I have. I have actually two. So the the, the first part is something I, I assume you have. So based on the way you laid it out, I think you have listened to Brian Miner's episode with Eric Harms and the guys. <laughs> yes, on the, <laughs> on the Iron Culture episode. So I would recommend. I, I'll link it in the description. So people can listen. I actually listened to it too. It was interesting. I just you know my whole my whole argument with that is in a practical sense. Like I I get the theoretical uh, differentiation, but in a practical sense, because they also, I think, mentioned this, that it's not really going to change what you're going to do in the gym. So whether progressive overload is an after effect or is the cause, over time you still have to progress in the gym. So it doesn't really change um, too much. What it does change is when, like you said yourself, when you fall into that paradigm that, hey, I have to get lift more weight, every single time and that's when you get from sets of 8 to 10 to sets of <laughs> 2 to 4 and uh, you end up spinning your wheels and and that's what I you know that's what frustrates me because I see these guys who will not listen to me who will ask for a spot from someone else and they will do the same fucking weights for like a year and I see them every single week same stuff they bench 60 kilos they bench 70 they ask for someone to spot them for at 80 kilos and they do three reps and fail the fourth and whatever. And it's the same Monday after Monday after Monday. And they don't progress anywhere. Their physique doesn't change. And I'm there looking like, <laughs> how, how much time are you going to waste before you realize this is, this is not working? Like, if you do it for three months, it's not working. Okay, but if you do it for three years, then you're just an idiot. And the second part I wanted to mention is about this overload range and I agree and you know this is one of the things I disagree with Mike Isretter for example like Mike you know he has this thing that you know every single your uh, MAV your maximum adaptive volume sort of changes and you have to change it every single week or you have to do more because the volume you did last week is now not maximally adaptive and uh, I don't think so I mean like you said yourself if let's say you did three sets of 10 with um or three sets of eight with i don't know 100 pounds to give an easy example next time if you do three sets of eight with 100 pounds it's still going to be probably effective not if you did the same thing for a month or three months then it might be too easy but if you improve just the execution a slight little bit you know maybe if you got a rep so you did three sets of eight on the first, but then you did nine on the last one. That's still a minor progression. That's, that's still going to be sufficiently challenging to elicit some 
adaptive response that you're looking for, in my opinion. I would have to agree with you just based on the fact that they're also within talks that Mike has given um, and the information that is out there. He doesn't tend to have a problem with training programs that would just have you sitting in a certain volume range that is within your, you know, the range that would be adaptive for you and just kind of coasting there. He doesn't prefer to program that way. He prefers to have that escalating volume kind of paradigm for the purpose of what you just said. But there is still merit to those those programs that keep on pushing other parameters in one way or another, where they keep on grinding out the same set volume over time, but it'll still be stimulative of more muscle growth and strength uh, strength increases. It just may not be his ideal way. There have been way too many people who have gotten results with way too many approaches to to get bogged down in in such a minutia. Um, you know, it's it's like the um, the diet realm, which I don't want to get too dive delved into, but just to use it as an example, like. If, if people have gone low carb and got a result, people have gone high carb and got a result, then it has to be something else than the exact carb amount from their diets, right? I mean, it would be fairly self-obvious, but some people really don't uh, don't want to to get the, don't want to see the forest for the trees. So, um, speaking of uh, perfect execution and getting too uh, idealistic with it. Uh, let's talk about momentum a bit, because uh, you and I had a bit of discussion about barber rules and where momentum fits into this. Um, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on momentum? How much is acceptable? How should it be implemented strategically? Because I used to think a while ago, well, I didn't really think too much of it, <laughs> and then and then I I sort of went into the whole, you know, no momentum is perfect and. Uh, like on retro raises, I did them for a while, like with my scapula, just depressed completely and just straight pure abduction, no scapular movement. Now I, I also let it move a bit. Um, now I also try to use momentum towards the later reps and exercises where perhaps the resistance profile isn't uh, ideal. Like, um, I don't know if we tried, for example, a high row or something like um, the hammer strength stuff usually tells us shitty profile, <laughs> so it might be uh, better to, because um, maybe we can get into the manufacturing stuff uh, towards the end of the time. But simply, let's get into momentum and how how you think about it. Okay, so for the first exercise you brought up, uh, bent over bar uh, barbell rows. So. Where I see momentum being helpful is it's a tool that you can use, but in all cases, it's not going to be the best thing for you to use, I don't believe. So for you to get continually stronger and to keep on progressing loads on a bent over row so that you can actually load in the mid range, which is going to be the place where you get the most benefit out of an exercise like that, there's, you have the best, um, ability to produce force from the lat, which is going to be your primary mover at the bottom of that barbell row. But it's also really, really hard for you to initiate movement from a complete dead stop with your elbows completely locked out like that, where you will be at the very bottom of that row. There's also the problem of what your stance is like, where your knees are, 
So the bar path and where that has to go, where your elbow path is and the relativity of where the bar is going to travel to your torso, whether you have to move it around yourself or you're in a perfect straight up and down line and your upper body is completely parallel to the floor. All those things will matter. So for the majority of bent over rowing, I would have to say that if you can tolerate going through most of the motion without using any momentum or letting your torso hop, that'll do more for you than if you were to uh, utilize it predominantly to move that load. Because we're actually trying to load our back muscles in that range of motion, not just to isometrically contract so that we can stay bent over while our hips do all the work of actually moving the weight. So that's typically what ends up happening on that movement. Where if you're bent over like that, the first thing that's going to initiate the momentum isn't going to be you pulling through your lat really, really hard, really fast, and then trying to get the bar close to you. The first thing that's going to happen is you're going to bend your knees like a, uh, a counter movement, like to a, to a vertical jump, if you've ever seen or know the example I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're going to make a counter movement through your hips, and then you're going to catch the load on the drop, and that's going to give you the stretch reflex. You're going to start to actually kick your hips forward, and that's going to pull your torso up, and your arms connected to the bar, which is connected to your lat, you're, you're not really getting anything out of them. You're just doing something at your hip to move the bar so that you can start to bend your elbows to get it closer to your body. And typically you end up pulling your body to the bar rather than the bar to your body, which isn't going to do you actually any good for lat development or upper back development, what have you, other than just the isometric contraction of holding the bar out in front of you and being bent over. So to take it to its extremes, having momentum be the primary method of how you move the bar is obviously not going to do what you want that movement to do for you. You're not going to load your lats with the amount of load that's on the bar for that entire range of motion, which should be the goal within reason. And on the other side, if you are at complete dead stop and you don't move at all and you only pull like the first thing that happens and the only thing that happens to move that bar is your elbows starting to flex and the bar comes up. That might be ideal for a lower weight and you can isolate a little bit better, but then you'd also have to beg the question of whether or not you want to use that movement as an isolation type Mm -hmm. or you want to use it as a compound movement. And wherever you place that is going to be based on you and what you want to do with it. My personal belief would be that you'd rather use that as a compound movement and cut it in between those two extremes. You want to control it as much as you can possibly control it, but you don't want to uh, let it go to the point where it's just, it's not giving you any usefulness for the muscles you're trying to train. Hope that didn't run in too far of a circle to follow, but that should get the point. Find it a bit uh, interesting you would consider a barber or a lat exercise. I just, I always thought of it as an upper back exercise due to the um, uh, strength profile, I guess, of the lats and simply the nature of the exercise so i always viewed it as more of a upper back compound um, exercise well you're going to hit i mean if you actually use it as a compound movement more than anything you're going to hit everything 
And then wherever the bar actually moves and what degree the elbow is abducted from your body, that's going to determine pretty much where the load is going to be placed and how you're actually getting it there. So, so if you're in a position where you're completely bent over and your torso is parallel to the floor and your elbows are traveling out away from your body rather than closer to your rib cage, you're going to get much more involvement of your upper back musculature than you are your lats. But if the bar travel is coming more forward out in front of your face and then closer towards your hip and the elbow is close to your ribs, you're going to get more lat than you would have otherwise. But even still, you very well could be right with that, that it's more of an upper back exercise. But that's not really something that I'd, I'd really have to argue with because it's, I view it as more of a compound exercise anyways, and trying to load it as an isolation would kind of be a, an effort in futility. I think the second version would be much better suited to do with the underhand easy bar or something like that, where you can actually keep your upper arm closer to you. The straight bar doesn't really lend itself to do that. But to circle back to the concept of momentum in general, then would you agree that it can be used strategically to alter resistance profiles, for example? Yeah. So if there's a position that you really like, mm, for a better example, rather than the bent over barbell row for like a lateral raise. If you're coming towards failure on a lateral raise and the dumbbells are straight down at your sides, that position of having your arms straight down, it, there's really essentially no actual loading occurring at the side delt because the force is completely aligned with the force of gravity is aligned with the joints of your arm to your shoulder where the axis of rotation is. So there's going to be no moment arm. There's no horizontal distance between the axis of rotation and where the load actually is. And because there's no moment arm there, as soon as you're pushing out to get the dumbbell up, you're going to get hit with a lot more loading really quickly in a very short uh, radial distance from the starting position. So that quick increase of forces that you have to produce is going to be really hard for you to overcome, especially when you're towards fatigue. So the idea of using a little bit of momentum to get you through the very bottom portion of a movement like that so that you can get to a point where you're a little bit stronger so you can finish the lift and actually get some benefit out of it, that is potentially useful. You'll get a little bit more volume out of it and you'll be able to get a couple more reps, get a little bit more you know, effective time under tension, especially if you're not going for just mechanical loading on a movement such as that. I was thinking, you know, there, I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. There's a study that has been like over-referenced at this point. There has been some sort of graph uh, computer modeling, and basically they calculated like... Uh, they made like it was so it wasn't an actual study in humans that like it was some sort of computer design and basically they concluded that if you um, if you accelerate from the bottom 30 percent 30 degrees of abduction basically you can basically stimulate the side that's more than if you um, like you said yourself if you were to simply very strictly reach out to your sides um, what I do is just do my glutes squeeze basically do as many reps as i can strictly then take three to five breaths and then do another five to ten 
raps with a bit of a hip um, momentum from the bottom. So I think that uh, that that basically satisfies both criteria. I also do my strict reps, then I also do my my um, less so strict but still effective reps. And um, obviously, it's not this concept of momentum can be applied to all exercises. There are some where the risk of uh, injury is not really worth it, and um, others where you cannot simply pause safely, like during the squat. Like you can try bouncing from the bottom, but I don't think that's going to be too effective. You can just deep dive bomb and hope that that momentum is going to um, <laughs> drive you back up from the hole. So it it obviously has to be applied very critically. But I think it's like with most things, you know, we don't have to be black and white about it, and we can just uh, use our brains and try to use it strategically. To come back to the point that you you made about that paper, that first 30 degrees of movement, the reason, at least I think they hypothesized in the paper, or otherwise somebody that was more in-depth with the biomechanics of it, they analyzed it and came through. The first 30 degrees of that lateral raise is going to be predominantly executed through by contracting muscles more deep to the shoulder than the delt itself. So the muscles that are going to act are going to be more your rotator cuff muscles for layman's terms so that they can actually visualize and know what we're talking about. But once you pass that 30 degree, you'll get more out of the side delt because there's actually going to be an internal moment on that muscle at that point. So that would be the reason for that being the case. It's also hugely dependent on lat size. Like, you know, some people, like pro bodybuilders, when you, when you see them, their lats are so big that they never really, the dumbbell doesn't really get close to them. Yeah, you can still get some actual loading on that side delt when there's enough tissue around it that your humerus can never actually come all the way down next to your side where it would be if you were, you know, normal sized. So... For those individuals, you you can pretty much get all side delt out of those lateral raises coming down to your air-quoted bottom position. So let's talk about um, alignment and sort of joint stress or joint um, uh, prevention, I guess, long-term, or joint prevention of joint degradation, whatever you want to phrase it, because I've seen you use some very heavy weights on school crushes, for example, and that's been one exercise I or one of the exercises I pretty much uh, never do anymore. I, I I abandon pretty much everything straight bar. Like um, my I have tiny baby wrists, so they, they don't they're not really suited for for loading them in that um, in that uh, plane of motion. I guess I'm. Um, I also don't really seem to have a complete ninety degrees of supination to do barber curls. Um, so I just I just do most of my stuff with cables and dumbbells. So um, again, where do you think the sweet spot is? Because you also laid out some very good points about people perhaps emphasizing this in certain movements and not on others. For my own training, uh, I, I do want to clear up for anybody that doesn't know me, and I'd have to assume most of you guys that are listening don't know me. Um, the skull crushers that I do aren't really like the typical easy bar, free weight, overhead, tricep extension skull crusher. I end up doing that on a cable stack too. 
And I do end up using a easy bar attachment. So the reason why it would be, you know, not the greatest movement for joint integrity is because of that, like having to fit yourself onto an arbitrarily fixed position. And then the extension of the elbow is pretty much the only thing that you're worried about for actually using your tricep. The rotation of your radial bone in your forearm isn't actually doing anything for your tricep. So you rotating your wrist isn't getting you any more tricep activation. And it may actually be worse because you have to also rotate at the humerus to accommodate the change in angle at your forearm. So the reason I'm able to do that and I can justify that to myself at this point on the cable, instead of having the load coming straight down with the force of gravity, like a free weight would be and that loading dropping off and coming on at such a rapid rate, having it at that, that angle, doing it with a free weight, it just hurts. Getting, getting that weight at the very bottom at that stretch position, it hurts there. Immediately when you start to contract into the load, it hurts again. And then all the way up until the weight is all the way above your face, it still hurts. And it hurts even worse. So that movement I really wouldn't recommend to anybody unless you are the extreme anomaly that just for some reason has the perfect joint structure to allow yourself to do that with no pain and no long-term foreseeable problems from movement compensations. Now, that is, like I said, an extreme anomaly, and I would have to assume that most of you, if not any of you, are not able to do that. So using the cable and changing the angle that the force is applied, it can kind of give a little bit of the benefit of having that force be a little bit more evenly distributed across the entire range of motion. So you don't have that really rapid turn on and turn off of how much force you have to put in so that you can maintain the position and progress through the range. So that gives a little bit of the benefit of you being able to stay in control of it and your joints aren't taking, you know, they aren't getting the shit beat out of them just by doing a single rep and you having to do that. Also, for me, the way that I grip the easy bar, the attachment I don't grip it all the way overhand and put my thumbs over it and do a full wrap and have the entire inside of my palm on that bar. So I allow myself a little bit more freedom at that and pretty much the outside of my hand, you know, the side, the pinky side, I pretty much press all the way through that so I can get my hands, my forearms and my upper arm shoulder as aligned as I can so that there's minimal rotation at any one of those points. So I can keep on just focusing on extending at my elbow rather than worrying about just moving the weight and then rotating at all of the joints that really aren't supposed to be rotating out of place in the first place. Now, there is, admittedly, there is a downfall to that. I can't completely stop that rotation from happening, and that will cause some joint wear and tear. That That's going to happen. But there's also a little bit of a a give and take that you have to decide if you're willing to handle it over time. Can you find enough exercises and can you find anything that's going to load you properly and give you variation over time that you can completely avoid something like that, where it kind of fits most of the parameters that you, you need to be hitting 
and you can get around some of its downsides so it can be useful to you. Although there is going to be some wear and tear damage, if you're not doing it on a consistent basis every year, all year round, every push session, or every time you have it programmed, then the amount of damage per unit volume may be the same, but you're not going to be accumulating it throughout your entire lifting career, which is where most of the problems tend to happen. And even if you have perfect execution on things, I mean, this is disregarding that exercise entirely. On any movement, you could have the perfect execution. Everything could be completely sound from the outside and from the inside from your, you know, your own subjective analysis. But regardless of that, we are still putting excessive loading through joints on extreme ranges of motion. So the amount of loading that your bones can tolerate, you may not snap them, you may not crack them, there may not be any serious destruction of those tissues and those structures while you're doing them. And they will actually grow to be stronger and more resilient over time through repetitive loading. But structures that are going to get damaged through your lifting are still going to get damaged. You can have really, really horrible form and they're going to get damaged quicker. But over years, you know, decades, there's going to be some point that you're not going to be able to load those things like that. And everybody seems to have found that point at some, at some point in their career. They hit 30s, 40s, 50s, and they're going, these movements used to work for me. And I mean, I trained forever and I never got hurt while I was a young guy. But now just these basic bicep curls are killing me. These squats are killing me. These deadlifts are killing me. It's You can only modify for so, mu- uh, so far and get things perfect for so long. It's still going to hurt. You were kind of playing a game where if we want to take this to the extreme and be really, really good at this, we're not exactly built as humans to be able to tolerate the kind of loading that we're putting ourselves under for the goal of muscle gain and getting as strong as possible. We're built to be resilient, but we're built to just survive in the most minimal and limited of circumstances we can be in. So we're better at living in surviving in conditions where we're threatened by, I don't know, famine and being dehydrated or being extremely cold or being extremely hot and things of that nature, environmental factors. And we have the ability to survive and do things other than that so that we can keep surviving, fighting for food, being able to get out of situations that threaten our lives, you know, fight off an animal, whatever it is. Now, this is going to keeping... This is going to keep going down a rabbit hole if I don't pull myself out here quick. But the point is there is that point where we're we're just doing something that's not natural for us. And as Dr. Scott Stevenson would say, we're repetitively moving things in space in a very limited range of motion that we're arbitrarily controlling so that we can create a muscular callus. That's what that's what it is. So it's not something that we're built to do or something that we're necessarily built to be very good at, but we keep on pushing for it because it's a goal that we've made for ourselves. Now, to a point, strength training and hypertrophy training is a good thing, and they cause a lot of positive metabolic adaptations. They help with, you know, our basic neurochemistry and just basic biology pretty much just all points to the fact that some level of resistance, uh, resistance training and physical activity is going to be good. But you take it too far and take anything to their extreme 
and there's going to be negatives. And for us specifically, when the name of the game is loading things under extreme amounts of load progressively over years and just continuing to increase that over time, the price that we pay is just our joint structures that aren't built to recover as fast as our muscles are. They're going to degenerate. And there's pretty much nothing you can do to stop that other than trying to be as good as you can at preventing, not actually preventing injury, but managing the risk factors involved with getting unnecessary injury rather than preventing it altogether. So many good points were raised. And um, I used to do that variation actually a couple of years ago. Now I I would have to go back and uh, try it again, see how it feels this time around. Uh, You know what, what I didn't like about it was that I always had to ask someone to raise the bar up for me because you can't grab the cable and set yourself to the bench. And it was annoying. I'm, I'm sure you know the struggle. Yeah, that's why I do it on the ground, to be honest with you. I mean, I'd probably get more out of that uh, tricep extension exercise if I was on a bench and I was setting up the angle for that. But I just, I can't pull, I mean, what? The last time I was able to do that, it was at my other gym. And it was the full stack plus a 45 plate and a 25 plate on it. So like, there's no way I'm just going to, pull that off the stack, walk it over, turn myself over to lay on a bench <laughs> and like start like, and I tend to have to, I train on my own and I've trained on my own for my entire career pretty much. So I just, I have to do things that I know that I can do on my own without anybody being there. So, so sometimes there's a little bit of a, you know, I wish I had somebody that could help me out with those movements Cause there's a lot of benefit to having a spotter there, having somebody that can help you out, get set up and, you know, get you out of scary positions when things start to go awry. But for the sake of actual longevity and being able to come back the next day, I kind of have to choose things that I'm going to be able to load by myself and figure out, you know, the best way with the limitations that are currently there. Yeah, don't like exercises where I have to rely on someone being there to help me. Cause you know, what happens if I, if, no, if there's no one around and I, then I cannot do that exercise, and it's annoying. So I just, uh, I just uh, don't include them. Um, I think that's actually one of the best or the greatest advantages of machines and um, having quote fancy or stuff available to you. Is simply longevity. You know, like uh, we only have a cable station at our gym that's up and down. You know, you don't. We don't have the adjustable height. But uh, I was training at that gym. I, I showed you some pictures of. And it had a dual cable with uh, a adjustable cable station. That's so good. You can line up your your elbow. Um, the resistance can come in a perfect angle, you know. So you don't. It, it, so you're just basically extending in a straight um, uh, line parallel with the floor. You don't have to extend it up and down. It's just makes things so much easier. So yeah, I would imagine if you had an adjustable cable station and the bench, and you could load the um um so you can set up the cable so you also get a good profile there then it can can be very very efficient and effective but uh, in the situation like you are where you're limited by equipment you sort of um have to make the best of what you have and um i also agree on long term you we cannot really avoid it um and that's actually what i've been saying to people that uh and they have been saying to me that, for example, why I don't do bicep curls with the bar, like I said that, or squat curls. Like, I mean, listen, 
ask anyone who has been lifting 20 plus years i haven't heard anyone who said that they haven't got uh, elbow pain from school crushers and uh, if every single guy says the same thing i don't have to experiment it on myself I mean, I don't have to try it out on myself, you know, and see if I I also get elbow tendonitis six months or a year or two years down the line or five years down the line. I, I'll take their word for it and I'll just stick to something that's on paper better, but I can still load. I completely agree with that. And even without taking it so far as like just taking the general population anecdote of all the people that have done it before. I mean, hell, you take a straight bar and start curling with it. If you don't immediately feel a stabbing pain in the insides of your elbows and your shoulders, like you are an anomaly. Like I don't, I don't remember a time that I've ever picked up a straight bar to do a bicep curl and it didn't immediately hurt to even just supinate my hands that far. So <laughs> that might just be me, but if you're like me and you have that immediate pain, as soon as you try to pick up the bar, just stop that that's with every other movement too. If the position itself for you to do the exercise is already painful. Don't do it. <laughs> and if that if that problem is from you just being in that position, that's not a place to be. If you have current mobility issues, and ability is getting into the positions and it's causing you pain because of those, then you have some other things to address before you come back to it. So don't immediately discount all exercises that hurt you immediately because you may have other things that you can work on before you can exclude their utility. If you have a barbell squat, a back squat, and you're getting down to, I don't know, 90 degrees, just arbitrary number here where most people see things take a turn for the worst. You get down there and everything's fine all the way up to there. And then you just curl over at the spine your lumbar spine just curls in half and you're looking like a question mark. Don't all all automatically assume that, I don't know, your leverages are bad or your femurs are too long or something like that, that you just have this innate issue about you that you're unable to do this movement. You have to look at, I don't know, do you have any degree of active dorsiflexion at your ankle? Any at all. Can you travel there? Do you have a pre-existing problem of, I don't know, an imbalanced tightness of your adductor muscles or your medial calf that brings your, your knees in tracking so you can't actually get any lower? Do you have a problem with your glutes not actually doing what they're supposed to and unilaterally stabilizing you to externally rotate your hip as you get further into a squat? If you have those problems, then you have other things to address before you can say, yeah, squats just don't work for me. I'm just going to leg press. Okay, sure, leg press for now, and it's a good tool, but if you never ever take the time to address those weak points that you're just incapable of hitting because your your mechanics suck, and your mechanics have brought you to create some tightness and other compensations around all the joints involved, they're only going to get worse the less you train into them. If you don't address any of those mobility stability issues, they're just going to compound over time. And that limited range of motion that you felt on your squat is going to become more and more limiting the less you train into it. You go to the leg press and you're going to, I don't know, a quarter of the range of motion that you were doing on that garbage squat in the first place. Eventually, 
your mobility and ability to hit your range of motion is going to start becoming more and more tightly restricted to the range of motion that you're habitually hitting on your leg press until that is the maximum distance that you're able to travel at all those joints. And then where are you? You're com- you're pretty much crippled yourself out of being able to use any exercises at that point because you can't actually put any of those joints through any appreciable range of motion to load them in the first place. So long rant short, don't exclude exercises just because you've seen on Instagram somewhere somebody talked about your active range of motion and then you just can't hit it and, I don't know, you have some structural problem that precludes you from using it. Like This has been happening a lot around squats specifically, which is why I said it. Everybody's on this wave of saying, no, you don't have to squat to get big. I mean, sure, that's, that's true. You don't have to. That is a true statement. But if you're just going about this and squats are hard and you have issues that you have to address for you to be a good squatter, then you just not doing anything to help yourself is only shooting yourself in the foot. You don't know if you haven't exhausted all other possibilities that you're incapable of doing it. So if you're a 16 year old kid, 18 year old kid, I don't know, 22 and you've been training for a year and you just never got good at squats and you saw somebody on Instagram say, you don't have to squat to be, you know, a good bodybuilder or whatever strength athlete, because you can do leg presses, you can do Bulgarians, you can do whatever else it is. It's true. But is it really true for you? You don't know that until you've exhausted the possibility that you're able to do it, but you're just currently not able because of problems that you've gone and left unaddressed. Saying that an exercise is not necessary is fine, but excluding uh, entire movement patterns is not. So saying that a particular, so high bar or low bar, because that's one of my pet peeves, low bar back squats are not necessary to get bigger legs. I agree, but any squats at all, not high bar, not front squat, not safety bar, not hack squats, not Bulgarian, nothing. <laughs> you know, like something, there is, you sort of have to have something to load the quads in that full length and range, I guess. You can't just do uh, the mid-range on the leg press and, I mean, I guess you could, but arguably you would get better results if you train their cost through their entire contractor range so to speak that's a really good example to make and if you wanted to take that even a step further so you can make this a little bit more applicable and we're not just pointing fingers and picking on people that decide they can't squat because they saw a post on instagram if you take any other movement or any other exercise and you use the same scrutiny i mean look a squat considering really only your lower body from your hips down the squat is pretty much just on the eccentric you're going to be dorsiflexing at the ankle flexing at the knee and flexing at the hip and then it's going to be the opposite on the concentric so if you just take the actions of what's happening at the major moving joints and you take that movement and say okay I can't squat. So therefore, if I can't squat, is it because I just can't squat because the mobility is not there? Or is it that I just don't see any utility in doing movements that load those actions at those joints? So 
if you take another movement, I don't know, um, the tricep extension again, if you want to do a skull crusher and you decide that there's no utility in that exercise, why is that? Maybe it causes you pain. Okay. That's one thing. Why is it causing you pain? If you don't know why it's causing you pain, explore that. If you figure out that you can do it, if you have adequate mobility and you're able to do that exercise properly, then sure, go at it. But if you start to exclude something like that and you start to make this mental connection with, I can't do skull crushers, so I can't do tricep extension, so I can't do anything that extends my elbow. What are you limiting to yourself? You really can't do anything with that muscle group anymore. You're pretty much limiting every possible movement at those joints that are involved in doing that. That's essentially what ends up happening with people that exclude entire exercises because of some innate problem with their anatomy that they've perceived. Somebody that thinks that they can't squat, a lot of the time I hear, I'm tall, so my leverages are bad. It's like, okay, sure, maybe you're not going to be as innately good at, at squatting as somebody that has a four inch long femur that's like, you know, four and a half feet tall. Like they're going to be, they're going to be pretty good. And, but that's not you. You have to work with what you're given, but what you're given doesn't have to fit some other arbitrary scale that somebody else set out with their own personal scale of what they're capable of. Very often it's just a, or it's not always, but most often that it's just one, a lack of technique and lack of strength. And once you start strengthening yourself and once you start getting good technique, then all of a sudden your your imbalances and all your structural issues mostly sort out themselves. Um, you know, I have I have longer than average femurs and I have to bend over to squat, but I'm not uh, that extreme. I was I was uh, working out with a girl uh, recently, and she she also does low bar and she has to bend over very very much so, but. If she goes high bar and she elevates her heels, then starts looking much more like a squat and much less like a good morning. So, those are very easy things to to um, consider buying some weightlifting shoes to use the squat example, um, putting some extra heel elevation, using a safety bar if you have it or something that can put can can allow you to keep a more vertical torso. All of those things are um, tools you can use to be able to see a squat while. Um, adopting the exercise to your structure and not completely abandoning it and then simply getting better and getting stronger like um i used to do like the 30 minute foam rolling this drill that stretch this and that um nowadays i just do bodyweight squats and tempo squats first and then just warm up and start squatting and that's it i wish my my warm-ups could do that <laughs> uh yeah, so there's something in there that I, I'd like to address a little bit. Um, I'd have to say that for a lot of people, that is all you're going to need for your warm up and you getting into an actual movement. If you're coming into it and you already you don't have any chronic issues otherwise, then you can probably just do your warm up sets, do something light, feel out the movements, get into it, and start increasing the load time after time. You know, set after set for your warm ups, and then just get after it. So that is one method, and that's something that a lot of people do end up doing. But there is something to be said for that other method that you were talking about. The, I mean, 
that 30 minute foam rolling and doing all these activations or stretches and all that stuff. There's still merit to that, especially for people that actually do need it. So for me, I wish I could do, you know, just walk in on my leg day, set up a bar and just do a set of 135 at front squat and then just do it slow, do some tempo, do 10 reps and then put on a plate per side, do it for five reps, same tempo, control it, figure it out, three plates, four plates, and then start getting at the work. But if you have something walking in that's already a problem and you know it's a problem and it'll cause issues to your movement, then those need to be addressed first. So not necessarily doing a full foam rolling technique, like doing your entire body and spending an hour laying on a rumble roller or lacrosse ball hitting everything or using a Theragun and hitting every muscle that you know is going to be working that day because that's not going to be helpful. It's going to be counterproductive more than anything. But if you, like me, for as an example, I have had an injury to my right knee for a while. That was just something that was happening over overuse of using the same exact pattern and not addressing my mobility properly for too long. And now, before I do any sort of deep hip and knee flexion, so squats and leg presses, for my right knee to stay tracking properly and for me to not feel pain and for my actual hips to get to the the very bottom position of a squat without me curling over or getting kicked out, I need to do some rolling on my medial calf. I need to do a little bit of lacrosse ball work on the insertion of my adductor on the medial side of my knee. I have to do a little bit of release on my uh, VMO. So like, I don't hit my entire quad. I don't sit on a lacrosse ball on my entire hamstring and try to fix that. That doesn't work. You're just, you're giving the wrong signal to those muscles and your entire nervous system to kind of say, yeah, we're going to turn off now. That's not something you need. What you need is for those muscles that have a chronic level of tightness that's beyond what is necessary for you to go through normal range of motion at the joint. You address those specific muscles that are directly limiting your ability. You hit those and get them to be relaxed to a degree that is almost nearing the same relative tightness of the other muscles that aren't already a problem. Then you're at a more level playing field for everything and you don't have something that's overly tight and pulling you out of position and causing you pain. So I don't know. That's just my take on the actual applicability of using SMR or anything of that type as a warm-up technique. It's a part and it's a tool, but you have to know how to use it, where to use it, and when to use it. If you do have pre-existing conditions and do need it, then it's not something you should shy away from because it's not totally founded in the research thus far. Or I have two issues or rather two uh, conditions when it comes to these things. One is to simply do the minimum amount necessary, like if you can get the job done in five minutes, there's no point in doing 60. Um, so I, I'm fine with um, with doing it. Or like you said yourself, you seem to have a very justified reason for doing them, and that's awesome. Um, if I don't need it, I won't use them. And the second worry for me is that people become sort of over-reliant or over-dependent on them, or they sort of have these... Um, 
this mindset and not to throw Ben under the bus again. I'm sure he has since changed his opinion. But at one point, he had this quote that was very much uh, famous. He said at one point that if I forgot my my uh, protein shake or my post-workout shake at intra-workout shake uh, at home, I would just I would just turn around and leave the gym or something like that. You know, like really, you know, and this is one of those things like if I forgot my foam roller at home, I won't even bother training or oh my goodness, I don't have my balls with me, my lacrosse balls, not the other balls, <laughs> then uh, <laughs> then I cannot do my workout right now because I don't have them, you know, that's the whole uh, issue. Um and I see this mindset developed around the whole physio stuff and chiropractic and manual therapy and that sort of uh, stuff. That's something that plays into an idea that I end up talking about a lot inadvertently. But the chase, the ev- never-ending chase for optimality in you know the field that we're in, it... It ends up being a problem when the chase for optimality ends up making you do things like that and com- makes you completely unadaptive to unforeseen circumstances. Like, the example of, I don't know, I don't want to throw Ben under the bus at all. So random person A decides, okay, if I don't have my intra-workout shake when I show up to the gym that and I forgot it, it's just training isn't worth it. I'm getting no benefit, but we just leave. That's it. There's, there's no, util- no utility in continuing. We just go home. Like that's, that is completely missing out on really the entire benefit of doing your training in the first place because you're missing on, I don't know, a 2% benefit on the overall because you didn't have your intra. Like that's just not, it's not worth it. The balance isn't there. You have to be able to approach these, these sorts of things, these situations with some wherewithal of what's actually important and to what degree it is for you to make those decisions. So if, if you're a type A kind of person and you need everything to be perfect, then you are, I mean, you're in good company because most of us are in this industry, but we have to be very cognizant of the fact that we can't have it always perfect all the time. And if you're unable to function or deal or just keep on adapting to things that come your way because it's not quote unquote optimal conditions, you're going to make it nowhere in the grand scheme. It's just not going to work. So that's a question that I've, I've gotten recently after I talked about it on Instagram that uh, I think the question to paraphrase, cause I don't, I don't have it up right now and I'm not going to, but um, do you believe that it's still worth training hard? Even if you are in, less than optimal conditions for recovery via having less sleep than normal, having less sleep than's optimal, you know, shifted sleep cycle or not getting enough food in before the session or, I mean, ETC, ETC, the list goes on. But honestly, that, that conversation and that question came up because <laughs> I'm fairly vocal about it because it's something that I deal with on a day-to-day basis. I almost never have the optimal conditions that would be, I mean, best practice right now if I could for me to optimize my performance and recovery. It literally never happens. I mean, just last night, I was working between the hours of 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. I got to sleep at 3. I got up at 8 in the morning to do my cardio. Like, 
that's not optimal sleep timing. That's not, I mean, I had my last meal at midnight. I mean, as far as what the, the chronotyping nutrition things that are coming out now, if you're an evidence-based practitioner, like people are these days, they like to put that into their Instagram bios a lot. If you're that person that goes, oh, there's emerging research on it. Like this is the only thing that matters. You have to stop eating, you know, at 10 o'clock at night or else your, your chronotype, your, your timing is going to be off. All your body clocks are going to be off. Things aren't going to work. You're never going to grow. You're never going to get stronger. You can't progress in the gym. Good luck training the next day. Like if your mindset is that if you don't have the perfect conditions to train that you're just not going to, or you're going to half-ass it, good luck, man. Just good luck. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to go down the endless abyss of trying to create optimal conditions for every possible thing. And that'll start leeching away from the actual things that matter. You just getting your training done, you getting adequate stimulus on a day to day, you sleeping at all, drinking enough water, eating enough food. Those, those are the basic things. And it might just end up getting memefied that like the only thing that matters uh, from quote unquote bodybuilder, you just got to eat food and sleep. And that's it. Don't worry about anything else. Like there's truth to that. If you're trying to just be perfect with everything and you don't have your antioxidants for like two hours after your workout because it stops inflammatory processes, like, okay. Um, to what degree does that actually practically matter? You don't know because it's mechanistic research and not practical that gave you that assumption. And then you had somebody that don't took too deep of a dive into the research once and didn't look at the actual practical applicability of it and goes, yeah, this is best practice. And everybody that has, I don't know, evidence, uh, evidence-based practicing coach in their bio immediately hops on and goes, yep, no berries post-workout anymore. We're eating only white rice and only chicken. And that's it. And there's nothing else. Or even further, we're only having whey protein post-workout because it's been shown to be the best and most quickly absorbed protein source that there is. So any other protein source is automatically inferior and whole protein sources are useless. So now you're you're having six protein shakes a day and you're not getting the macros in and you're not getting the micronutrient profile and you rabbit hole after rabbit hole. I'll go down with this. So to end the point of that whole long rant that I just went on without you stopping me, just keep continuing to do the basic things. If you don't have the feasibility in your day-to-day life and just things circumstantially don't work out for you to get things perfect, do the best you can. That's it. Just do the best you can and you will progress. Use some amount of good, best general practices to get things done, stay consistent on it, and you will move forward. You may not move forward at the pace that you possibly could if you could just stop your entire life and pursue bodybuilding on its own, but you're still going to make it further than if you just decided to quit because you didn't have perfect circumstances. I think you you hacked into my computer and you're, right, and you're reading off my notes. My last bullet point is, uh, and I'm reading it right now, chasing optimality and overthinking everything. <laughs> so there you go. You anticipated my, my last question. So that's awesome. And that's a great way to bring this whole discussion to a closure. Uh, of course, I agree. Um, I was laughing when you when you someone asked that question. Like, 
if I only see five, is it even worth bothering training? No, I mean, you should just stop training because, hey, that's how it works. Like, you either live like a monk and you either uh, revolve your life around training or you it's might as well just not, not, not worth bothering at all. I mean, it's of course, it's it's that way. It's There's no in-between. There's no shades of gray. It's only black and white. Like, come on now. Yep. If, if you can't do every single detail of all of this down to the exact most up-to-date research paper, then you're exactly doing nothing and you should give up and go home, find a new hobby, something that ideally doesn't involve you doing any physical activity and just give up. That's it. That's just, that's, yep, that's as far as it has to go. If you can't be optimal, then what are you even doing? All right, so that was episode 36 of the Boston Engineer podcast with Nick Love. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you find it valuable. Now, uh, before I get into my usual uh, couple of takeaways from this episode, I would have a request. So, uh, and this isn't something I usually um, mention, but you know, every now and again, I listen to an episode from someone else and I'm reminded of it. If you enjoyed these episodes, please uh, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get these from. Please share it with a friend. Send it to someone who might find these helpful or valuable. Share it on social media. Tag me in your stories, all that good stuff. It's really appreciated and it would really help me grow this podcast, be able to reach more people, help more people and be able to have better and better episodes coming out as often as possible. Because as you know, I do this alone. It's not something I get any sort of financial return uh, out of. It's just, you know, a side uh, passion of mine. And um, as I've said many times before, it doesn't pay the bills. So, you know, something as small as sharing it on your stories or something like that would be very, very appreciated. So thank you in advance. Now with that out of the way, Let's get into my takeaways, which is going to be one key idea, I guess, and that is the concept of balance and sort of avoiding the extremes. Um, what do I mean by this? Like pretty much every topic we addressed, execution versus loads, momentum, you know, how should you do an exercise? How worried should you be about um, stressing your joints? Whether you should try to progress despite your circumstances not being ideal, it all comes down to balance, you know, having a balanced point of view. Is momentum good or bad? It's probably somewhere in between, right? Should you just focus 100% on execution or 100% on loads? Probably both. Is joint stress something you should worry about? Yes, but you shouldn't dramatize it. You shouldn't nocebo yourself. You shouldn't Tell yourself things that make you weak, to quote Jordan Peterson. Like, it all comes down to the idea of balance and basically trying to do your best. Like, I think that's another thing that I could add here. Like, try doing your best, because ultimately, the best is all you can do. And if any given day that means sleeping five hours, it is what it is. If that's the best you can manage, that's the best you can manage. Another day you might find you are able to sleep 10 hours and that's awesome. But you shouldn't be too attached to this uh, uh, arbitrary notion of optimality. Like I see so many people fall into this trap. Like when they start reading about 
um, training or diet concepts and they, they then they suddenly feel like oh my goodness there are so many things I'm not doing like they try to hyper optimize everything and basically they just <laughs> they get worse results because they simply forget about taking care of the big picture first and they simply stress themselves into the ground so try doing your best day in and day out and um, try to live a little <laughs> as well um, as I said in that outro obviously I was kidding like you shouldn't your life shouldn't revolve around training your training should fit around your life because chances are if you're listening to this you're not making a living from your training it's just a hobby of yours so there's that that's my message for you for this week thanks for listening again and I will talk to you all very soon <laughs>